Hi everyone. Hola a todos. This is Julia, your favorite business journalist reporting from Brussels. These days here, everything is about the war in Ukraine. European Union and NATO allies are not directly involved in the war that Russia started against Ukraine, but since the 24th of February, they are active on the financial front. Many observers have been surprised to see that the European response has been quicker and more united than the past experience would suggest. Since Russia launched its attack on Ukraine, Europe has adopted an unprecedented set of measures aimed at significantly curving the Kremlin's ability to finance the war. Among trade and political sanctions, financial and economic measures are at the forefront of the European and Western strategy to put pressure on Russia. But Europe is already paying the economic cost of this approach. And some say it's still not enough. So what I did is to look into the matter to better understand this debate and the consequences of the financial sanctions from the European Union. That is how it goes. European financial and economic sanctions against Russia can be divided into three main strands. Firstly, sanctions targeting Russian individuals directly linked to the war, such as President Vladimir Putin, members of the Duma, businessmen and oligarchs, as well as famous names such as Roman Abramovich, the owner of the Chelsea Football Club. He's one of the latest businessmen to be affected by these measures. In total, more than 800 Russian personalities are now on the blacklist. But this one is far from being the EU's most powerful financial weapon. One of the unprecedented measures on the financial front is the disconnection of the individual Russian banks from SWIFT, the global financial messaging network. To understand better about all these sanctions, I decided to call Nicolas Veron, a senior research fellow at Bruegel and the Peterson Institute for International Economics. So Nicolas, why did the EU decide to ban Russia from the SWIFT system? SWIFT is a messaging system. It's an information infrastructure. It's not a clearing system, uh, so it's not a system to move money, if you will, a system to move messages about financial transactions. So a bank that is cut off from SWIFT can no longer use that very easy, very user-friendly, very well-plugged uh, infrastructure to send messages about transactions. And that means it can still do transactions, but it has to send messages uh, in a different way. So it can use a fax, it can use an alternative messaging system like the Russian or the Chinese one. Um, it can use uh, whatever other um, uh, messaging system it, it wants, um, you know, flying pigeons. Uh, but uh, but it cannot use SWIFT. But while it hampers Russian banks from trading beyond its borders, SWIFT disconnection is still not the most powerful sanction either. The biggest blow was the decision to freeze the assets of the Russian central bank. Central banks, like investors today, want to diversify their assets and have the best and many options available. That is why the Russian bank had some of its reserves spread around the world and in different currencies. However, since 24th of February, it can no longer access its reserves in the US, in the EU, in the UK, but also in Canada, Japan, Australia and Switzerland. Nicola, why do you say this decision to freeze the central bank's funds was perhaps more effective. And what's extraordinary in the actions that was taken in late February is that all the 
convertible reserve currency issuing uh, countries and jurisdictions acted together at the same time. So it's not just exclusion from dollar from the dollar world, it's exclusion from the entire convertible reserve currency world. That's what happened to the Russian central bank. What that means is that probably more than half of its reserves are basically not accessible and cannot be used uh, for financial operations that would sustain the Russian financial system, the Russian economy and the Russian war effort. So Russia is already feeling the consequences of all these measures, but the economic crisis is not only because of the sanctions, correct? You have something which I think is increasingly significant, which is the Russian war atrocities, you know, uh, murderous behavior on the ground, bombing maternity hospitals and all that, maybe soon uh, doing nuclear terrorism or using uh, chemical weapons or both. And that is triggering, it, it's amplifying the external um, reaction, right? So when, when you see a number of international companies withdrawing from Russia, uh, so for example, let's say, you know, Visa and MasterCard recently did that, that has impact for Russians, especially if they want to do international transactions with their business card, you know, buy something on the web. Um, this is not necessarily because of the sanctions. This is just because uh, the stakeholders of those companies, shareholders, customers, employees in different proportions, depending on company cases, they're telling those companies, we no longer want you to do business in Russia. Please stop it. All this leads international experts to claim that Russia could face the worst economic crisis since the Second World War. However, Putin's war still continues and intensifies, a world effort made possible by Russia's energy revenue. Despite all these financial sanctions, Europe still sends more than half a billion euros a day to Russia. Nicola, isn't this a paradox? Russia still sells a lot of oil and a lot of gas, particularly to Europe. That brings its revenue in hard currency. So the paradox is that Russia has lost much of its international reserves. There is a loss of confidence in the ruble as a currency. But actually, they have a current account surplus, to use the jargon of economies. They get more money from the rest of the world than they spend there because they have all these exports of oil and gas, which are paid in dollars or euro or other convertible currencies. So the stock of their convertible currency has been frozen, but the flows on a daily basis, maybe you know half a billion euro every day, uh, is still very much there. So that's why the decisions and the discussion on energy purchases is so important at this point. What the US and the EU had decided in late February is to impose financial sanctions, but protect energy transactions from those financial sanctions. Germany and Italy, uh, these countries face a very difficult problem if, uh, if that decision to stop buying Russian gas is cut. And probably they will have to ration the use of gas and energy more generally, at least in the next winter. And that's enormously difficult politically, right? I mean, if you have to tell people, you know, you will have to freeze a little bit this winter because you cannot put the heating like you normally do. Everybody has solidarity with Ukrainians when it comes to, you know, crying when they see a maternity hospital being bombed. But if you have to freeze in the winter, it's a kind of different political equation. Some member states are pushing for tougher sanctions on Russia. Poland is among them. The most important proposal is a full embargo on importing Russian coal, oil and gas. On Polish radio, Deputy Minister 
Paweł Jawonski stressed that the export of raw materials provides the Kremlin with an important source of financing for its war. Firm decisions need to be taken to cut Putin off from money as soon as possible, because the sooner we do that, the sooner his economy, especially the part he is using to fund this war, will collapse. We should seek to destroy those elements that are financing his war machine. If we give him the slightest bit of breathing space, if we stop halfway, that could lead to Putin winning this war. In the European Parliament, Spanish Luis Garicano is one of the members who has most urged the EU to take tougher economic repressive action against Russia. He's pushing for a more immediate response by reducing oil and gas purchases from the Russian economy, which he describes as a gas station with nuclear missiles. So I met him for an interview, which we had in Spanish, of course. Mr. Garicano, you believe that buying energy from Russia means supporting the Kremlin. ¿Es verdad? That is why oil and gas is the big hole we have right now in the sanctions. That is why it weakens the sanctions against the Russian central bank, because they still accumulate money. That is why it also weakens SWIFT sanction, because there is still a hole for the energy payments. At the end of the day, you have left a hole in the middle of all your measures, and you have to close it. But Garicano, who is also an economist, insists that such a drastic measure will prevent Russia from pursuing the war more efficiently and quickly, sparing Europe from longer-term economic consequences. Could you explain why? My view is that it is quicker, more efficient and cheaper in terms of human lives, in terms of military efforts, to do it all now than to give them seven months to diversify the gas and oil sales, to secure deals with China. And then when winter comes, it can hurt us a lot. So it is on this point that the sanctions debate is currently pivoting in Brussels. Europe is already feeling the economic fallout of the war in the form of a dramatic increase in energy prices, which is also pushing up inflation. European leaders are trying to find a way to mitigate this impact while analyzing whether the EU can and should stop buying gas from Putin's energy sector. In the meantime, the bloc is committed to reducing this energy dependence. We need to remember that of all the gas the EU needs each year, more than 40% comes from Russia. So a plan has been put in place to reduce Europe's gas imports from Russia by two-thirds over the next year. Well, that's it for today. I hope this helped you better understand the debate that I am following every day now here in Brussels. Make sure to check back soon for another Voices from Brussels. Hasta luego.